Hola. Hola, Charlito. Charlito. Hola, Charlie. Char. Hey, Charlie. Okay, Charlie. Is your name Charles? It's Charlie, not Charles. What's up, everyone? Thank you for joining me today. So what can I say? A lot has been happening. Our worlds have been disrupted due to the COVID, these recent incidents of racism, police brutality, shutdowns, and we've lost a sense of who we were, right? Which begets the question, who do we now become? What was the normal? And is it a right idea for us to return to that normality? For many reasons, some would argue no, right? That this is an opportunity to reshape America and dismantle a system birthed out of oppression and exploitation. Hopeful that this pandemic and civil disobedience in the streets punctures a hole in this previous overflowing of hypercapitalism that has made it more difficult for the middle and working classes to simply get by. That this has exposed inequities and unequal distribution of wealth, privilege, and opportunity like never before. And these thoughts are fostered by the extra time some of us have, you know. Pandemics have always left individuals feeling a bit existential, uncertain, and more willing to imagine a new way of living. Now on the other side, there are some that want to go back to our old normal. They appreciated the way they lived. They say that if businesses can reopen, millions of unemployed people can go back to work, which will then help the economy. That law and order was served before and we should continue the same system that we've used for hundreds of years. Some even acknowledge the need for policy change, but do not empathize with how the protesters and the activists are going about it, even going as far as highlighting the looting over the peaceful protests, criticizing the media and interest groups for sensationalizing recent events. Yet irrespective of how great or serene your life was prior to the pandemic, the recent instances of racial injustices that gave rise to protest all over the world have led many to hit the streets in support of black lives, I included. This social uprising has inspired many people from all walks of life, from all parts of the world to say enough is enough, that it's time to dismantle this white supremacy by eradicating the racist practices of the police departments. I'm for defunding the police and reinvesting those resources in communities through education, housing, job creation, and peacemaking initiatives that can replace militarized policing. I understand the political inconvenience 
this may cause, especially in light of election season. But we cannot walk away from this moment without radical reform, or at the very least, doing away with policies that increase police violence. We should also not forget that our jobs, reality TV, and our general ignorance in the interest of maintaining capitalism and um, preserving the status quo have distracted us in the past instead of pushing for real change. And we have to be careful this does not happen again. Personally, I'm not eager to become this willing participant of capitalism for that reason alone. There is so much shit to do. But I understand the bills are like Diddy in the 90s. Can't stop, won't stop. And this is one of the reasons why I started this podcast. I want to do my part in raising the consciousness surrounding these issues while also making sure that I continue to align my personal liberation with the financial liberation of marginalized communities. Now, I say that because quite the opposite was normalized for so many claiming liberal views. The old normal easily placed profit before people and didn't hold police officers accountable for murdering a civilian. The old normal didn't encourage a pluralist society where differences were celebrated, but rather tolerated or worse, decimated. What was normal didn't benefit the general welfare that was referenced in the tax and spending clause of the United States Constitution. I mean, we have a president that bragged about not paying federal taxes in years prior to being elected. In the words of Nick Tilson, who sits on the board of the Indigenous People's Power Project, normal never did us justice. So as we navigate between the old and the new normal, we have to learn and unlearn a few things in order for us to move forward. And now talking about learning, right? This generation is teaching us about an activism that demands constant pressure in a social uprising. As a result, we are starting to see real change in policy by cities, states, and the country. We've seen schools end contracts with police. We've seen the NYPD dismantle their anti-crime unit, right? We've seen the New York Senate repeal a 44-year-old law, 50A, which shielded police disciplinary records. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, we've seen the mayor refuse to renew a live police department contract. And on a national level, we've seen an effort to cut off access to military weapons for local law enforcement, right? And momentum to reopen cases for those who have died in the hands of police. We've seen white folks utilize their privilege to become better allies and question not only institutionalized racism, but also their subconscious racism and anti-blackness. We've seen Americans that were once blinded by the flag come out in support of Black Lives Matter, like New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees and the NFL commissioner Roger Goodell. Even corporate entities have come out and have made bold statements in support of Black Lives Matter. One would hope that they are genuinely in support of preserving black lives rather than just protecting their black dollars. We've seen international efforts and protests in support of black lives, 
even in countries with small POC populations, we've seen protests. Domestically, we've seen statutes hailing racist Confederate heroes being ripped apart. I'm telling you, America has been forced to face the inadequacy of our healthcare system, highlighted by the lack of resources. America has also realized that racial justice should be in the conversation of a better healthcare system. We just witnessed the disproportionate loss of life in the African-American community due to COVID. So check this out. As far as activism goes, I prefer this as a new normal. The constant protest, the constant pressure, the unlearning of his story, and the teaching of a more just society, honoring the wisdom and appreciating the lives of all Americans, not just white, but black, indigenous, people of color. For many of us, especially Latinos and Afro-Latinos, the new normal is about erasing the traces of white supremacy that exists within our neighborhoods, our families, and most importantly, within ourselves. The new normal is to keep denouncing ICE for their discriminatory practices and the politicians that support them. Before this new normal is normalized, though, we have to ask ourselves some important questions. How do we imagine a world without police? How can we build trust and safety with the people around us, our neighbors, and our community? How crucial is it for us to act or be still in this moment? What is it that we seek to achieve for the future? What are we most scared of? How is this pandemic and this continuing social justice reform affecting us? If we experience changes, how will we incorporate them going forward in our daily life? You know, so like, have we done enough reflection? Have we discovered what is truly important for each and every one of us? And what does that look like? How does that feel? Most importantly, how can we multiply? Where do we get our inspiration? Right? Asking ourselves, where do we get our information? Where do we get our knowledge? And is this place a destination or a journey? What are your views on the rights that have already been compromised during this pandemic? You see, freedom is the ability to act or change without restraint. But as we found out, none of these liberties are absolute. So in the event of a pandemic, the government can find compelling grounds to suspend these liberties, citing a public health emergency. So what have we seen? Well, we've seen human rights violations, including censorship, discrimination, and arbitrary detention with the suspension of habeas corpus. Now, what is habeas corpus for uh, those that are not attorneys or for those that don't know of this legal jargon? Well, 
Habeas corpus means bring forth the body in Latin. And attorneys like myself use this principle in our legal system to get a client out of jail when there is no justified reason for that client's detention. So that is suspended. We've seen xenophobia by our own president continuing to call the coronavirus the Chinese virus, spreading misinformation, prejudice, and knowing damn well that racial violence against Asian Americans has increased since the pandemic. How has the government's ability to impose a curfew, limit travel, and shut down business affected you? Well, we've seen an infringement on our right to travel, right? Across international borders, even within states, within neighborhoods, and even within proximity of each other being made to stay in one place. I have a friend whose mother fell ill to COVID and wasn't even allowed to be in her ICU room to hold her hand and bring her comfort in the last seconds of her life. We've seen infringement on our own right to earn a living, the ability to provide for ourselves and our families. Many of us in such dire circumstances that we risk our health for the right to work. We've seen the infringement of our freedom of association that some of us experience through unequal enforcement of social distancing. You see, I cannot get the viral photos out of my head showing NYPD officers handing out masks to non-socially distant white folks in Chelsea while various videos surfaced of black and brown folks in Brooklyn being pummeled to the ground for not strictly abiding by social distance protocols. We've also seen the infringement of our freedom of speech with increased crackdowns on information being shared, like with Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram flagging and taking down posts with certain code words or images. There lies the potential for disinformation and rumor disguised truths. We've also seen the infringement of our freedom of religion with imposed limits on people attending religious ceremonies. We've seen the infringement on our right to privacy with governments conducting mass surveillance in order to carry out contact tracing of disease spread and its carriers. I just discovered a COVID tracking exposure on my iPhone's health application just the other day. We've seen the infringement of our right to health when the doctors and the government have the power to decide who lives or who dies because there aren't enough ventilators for everyone that is sick. Imagine a doctor turning your sick mother away for an arbitrary reason because her life isn't considered as valuable or as healthier or as young as another person. Let's not even talk about the vaccine and whether proponents are financially incentivized or not. We've also seen our infringement to right to our property with government restrictions on short-term home rental operations such as Airbnb or restriction on home daycare providers coming to one's property when that may be the best and only option for families, especially low-income families. We've seen infringement on our right to vote with stay-at-home orders while absentee ballots are challenged for increased likelihood of voter fraud. Kentucky 
shutting down most of their polling locations. We've seen human rights violations in prisons with ridiculously high numbers of inmates testing positive for COVID and for not getting the medical treatment they so desperately need. With all of that, we also have to be mindful that we've seen privacy rights lost due to the 2001 Patriot Act. In times of crisis, the government exerts this power to take away our privacy in the interest of the public. But what happens when this national emergency no longer exists? We experience a government that maintains reluctance in giving our freedoms back. And as Americans, we have a lot on our plate. And these infringements compete for our intention, along with the public health and the economy, and reasonably so. We are approaching 124,000 lives lost in the U.S. due to COVID. And the last three months warranted public health being our primary concern. But the economy comes next. A lot of businesses, many of them small, could not survive the financial costs associated with the government shutdown. Many have resorted to taking out loans to minimize costs while still maintaining service to their communities. Many have also improved their online stores or pivoted towards serving essential workers through government or private assistance. So many have had to launch GoFundMe pages in hopes of staying afloat. However, there have been some fortunate businesses that were able to provide services to mitigate COVID and to grow their businesses, such as companies that sold packaged food or offered delivery services and uh, those who can operate with video conferencing while their users only have to wear jackets. Companies that sold disinfectants, companies that allowed you to shop for necessities online, such as Amazon, or at times became our cure against boredom, like Netflix. Pharmaceutical companies that developed antibody drugs to fight against COVID did well also. But many haven't enjoyed the same fate as those businesses or the people working for them. On June 4th, the Labor Department reported 1.9 million Americans filed new unemployment insurance claims for the last week of May, with 21.5 million receiving unemployment benefits by the week of May 23rd. At that time, the national unemployment rate was 14.7. And as a nation, many Americans are hurting right now. And even the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, is calling for additional economic relief. Shit, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, announced in late May that they anticipated a deep global recession that could be worse than the Great Depression. It was projected that 159 million individuals got a one-time $1,200 stimulus check but it sure wasn't enough for many to overcome financial hardship as a result of losing their jobs, their reduced hours, or getting sick. I'd bet $1,200 hasn't paid bills for all the three and a half months we've been in lockdown for any one of those that received that $1,200. Now, we have critics of government assistance 
that say that this decentivizes people from going back to work, which I find to be bullshit. Especially in light of the fact that the second round of checks haven't even been agreed on. Yet, we've been dealing with this pandemic for over three months. Now, common sense is not on the side of believing that Americans will be spoiled rotten by $1,200 and deterred from seeking steady employment. Small business owners were initially left out of the PPP fight to be able to stay afloat. Many of these small businesses specifically cater to the needs of the city's most vulnerable. It's a shame. Social distance protocol has also affected how restaurants serve their customers. Restaurant workers make up 10% of the U.S. workforce. And those that were fortunate that had the space are converting their parking lots into seating areas in light of the recent loosening of regulations. All of this should serve as a lesson that we must be intentional with our dollars and the politicians that we seek to support. We vote with our wallets and we cripple the economic hierarchy when we support local and small businesses. Now, how has this affected the knowledge we speak, especially children of color? Well, COVID has also exposed the inequities that exist in the educational system. Students of color, in particular, black students, were already struggling prior to COVID. And it is no secret that schools that primarily serve children from minority populations are underfunded and don't offer the same quality of education as those in more affluent communities with higher taxes. What we need is a pointed plan to pursue racial justice within our educational systems. It is a farce to think that without it, children of color could get to a position to be prepared for a forever changing economy. And the pandemic has also made more families consider homeschooling their children in the fall if they can afford it. The distrust is real. And the time spent with their children during quarantine has brought them face to face with their children's abilities and disabilities. A friend once mentioned to me that he came to grips with his own shortcomings when teaching his young son. Witnessing his son give up too easily on a math problem teleported him to those moments in life where he gave up too easily and was unwilling to fight for his own goals. Yet that friend, that friend parent, has it better than so many others. Some parents don't have the financial privilege to stay home and teach their children. Some are ill-equipped to learn the material due to language or literacy issues. And it's a damn shame. Why? Because access to education is extremely important for our communities of color. Enough to say that our survival depends on it. In a Forbes article titled, The Inequity Problem in Saying That College Isn't for Everyone, there was data that suggested academic success plays a major role in breaking cycles of poverty and carries a disproportionately beneficial impact of a college degree for students of color. So ahora dime tú. Now with the decreased risk of unemployment and susceptibility to COVID-19, many college graduates are at risk of being left out of the hiring process, not because they are unqualified, but because diversity initiatives usually fall by the wayside in times of crisis. 
Now, why is it important for there to be overall representation within the school districts? Well, I attended Carnell Hayes High School in the Bronx, a school that was predominantly white until the 1980s. When I went there, it was mostly Latino, Afro-Latino, black, a good number of Asians, and only a few whites. Though I can't tell you what the numbers are between students of colors and teachers of color, I can tell you that it meant the world to some of the students when I and others like me went back as an alumni to speak to these black and brown kids on annual career days. They saw themselves in us, and we conveyed the future we saw in them. According to an article written by Washington Post, the majority of public school students in the United States identify as students of color. Yet only 7% black students attend school systems where the number of black teachers equals or exceeds the percentage of black students. A ratio that drops to 4.5 for Asian students and one-tenth of 1% 1 for Latino students that attend the same school system where the number of Latino students equals or exceeds the percentage of Latino teachers. The Washington Post article went on to reference a study that confirmed the benefits of hiring a diverse teacher workforce. That diverse leadership matters too, but 80% of school principals are white compared to 10% that are black, 7% who are Latino, and a higher on the leadership ladder, only 6% of district superintendents identify as leaders of color. And I would argue in line with the study that in this country's mostly white educating workforce also lack the experience, skill set, and mindset to address the needs of these children. That they lack the tools to empower them through representation, empathy, and most important language. We cannot go back to this type of normality. Another question, how has this pandemic affected us personally, our relationships, our love life. What happens when you're forced to stay cooped up with your significant other? We haven't been able to assess the rise in divorces because divorces haven't been deemed essential conduct, especially in New York's closed courts. But there is data that suggests a direct connection between coronavirus and a surge in divorces. And as an attorney, I've received numerous calls about divorces, more than ever before. I'm sure financial instability, boredom, lack of exercise, um, conflicts over the kids, and an array of other issues are forcing many people to really question how they really feel about their partners. The quarantine has already resulted in a surge of divorce filings in China, according to Bloomberg report um, earlier this month. But the data is not all gloomy. In the Journal of Family Psychology uh, that indicated when Hurricane Hugo hit in 1989 and ravaged parts of the Caribbean, the southern eastern uh, part of the U.S. and even Canada, that marriage, birth, and divorce rates increased in the 24 counties that were declared as disaster areas. So this suggested that a life-threatening event motivated people to take significant action in their close relationships that altered their life course. Now, my thoughts are consistent with this study. I believe that pandemics such as this 
gives us opportunities for radical transformation in our lives, especially when we have the time to think. And I also believe that such radical transformation strengthens relationships. Now, I also read that uh, not many divorces were filed after 9-11. And though there were too many lives that were sadly taken by both events, there is a distinction between 9-11 and this COVID pandemic. This COVID pandemic had a larger economic impact on the larger number of people nationwide. You see, a terrible event that takes lives makes us question things and to realize how fragile life is. And that alone is a motivating factor to pull us closely to our loved ones. But the economic component of this pandemic is consistent with the top reason for divorces nationwide, which is financial. It's concerning to know that capitalism has a say in who we choose to spend our lives with or apart from. We shouldn't return back to that normal. Now, I haven't found much data on how co-parents are dealing with this pandemic, but I could only imagine that the norm has shifted uh, with schools being closed. You would hope many have found common ground for custody exchanges. And in doing so, uh, many probably realize that it was in fact your ex's business to know who you were dating and bringing around your children. I have heard beautiful stories of compromise in which co-parents have grown closer as a result of this pandemic. You love to hear it. What about dating and sex? Shit. I'm sure the global epidemic has tested many long-distance relationships, especially international ones. I actually have this friend who hasn't seen his partner in almost five months due to the travel ban, and he's sick about it. Realizing how much we take for granted when we're unable to just hop on a plane and see that person. And what about those I don't catch feelings, I catch flight types? I hope someone is checking up on them. Data suggests that dating apps are doing well. And I wonder if we will see a resurgence in relationships. You can make the argument that existential crises and financial hardships seem to be a recipe for being in a relationship or not. But now, aside from the iPhone tracing your every move, job uncertainty, plexiglasses, uncomfortable masks, and IG Live concerts, how do you feel? Social isolation has contributed to unprecedented levels of anxiety, causing some of us to feel helpless and lost because the way we see ourselves has so much to do with these fixed identities we created for ourselves related to our jobs and our social lives pre-COVID. Some of us are threatened but conflicted because we finally started to favorably position ourselves within that old system. And though we may return to some extent to business as usual, we've become acquainted with this deep sense of like courage and ability to survive consciously without obsessively engaging in this capitalist machine. And that may be difficult to process for some, but let us use our privilege to help those that are unemployed, underprivileged, and maybe with those with 
pre-existing mental health problems, right? Those at risk for domestic violence and child abuse. Those elderly people coping with health issues. I raise all of this for awareness, not for indulgence. I do believe that there is much to gain when we acknowledge our deficits. So as we look toward improving our immune systems and begin to reflect on the last three months as a distant time, let's be moved by our experiences, not controlled by them. My point is that there's a long road ahead and we need to be good to ourselves. The road towards this new normal of dismantling oppressive systems and inequality requires endurance. It requires the best version of ourselves. Author Wayne Dyer once said, what you think about, you expand. And Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. We should take a minute and think about all of the experiences in our lives that we initially deemed as negative but turned out to be blessings in disguise. Imagine if we just took a second to be present at this moment. We can observe the thunder start to settle. And with patience comes understanding. And with this understanding, we'll come to realize that clouds are necessary for shifting water around the world. And with that, we allow ourselves to appreciate the beautiful mystery of the ocean under a clear blue sky. Thank you for joining. Peace and love, y'all.